There's a storyline being written in Boston that all the downtimes make sense if you trust the one who has written the story before and you don't bail out and you keep filling the bowls of intercession until someone said this, that prayer is like a mold. The promises of God are like a mold. You know what a mold is? Not moldy, but a mold. That when you pour prayers that finally fill the mold, the promises are fulfilled and the substance comes forth. Do you understand what I'm saying? You just got to stay with it, Daryl and Bethany. The student missions movement, the promises of God in Boston from Derek Prince, all we can do is stand in faith with the prophecies. We refuse to bail out in the dark times. And that's a word of God to many of you. Don't bail out on the promises of God. He's written a good story about your life. I feel we're back in another moment of the storyline of this place and what God indeed wants to do. In fact, the storyline goes back to our forefathers of Boston. We are a part of a storyline from an ancient inheritance. And we, as the sons of the forefathers, are actually fulfilling the dreams that are yet unfulfilled in their lives. And they're looking over the balconies of heaven tonight. And if you could open up your eyes, they might be sitting up here. John, hey, Jonathan Edwards, how are you doing? <laughs> Come on. Hey, George Washington, dude. <laughs> the great thing about God is he just never gives up either. You just think of Samson, and he fails completely on his assignment but his hair begins to grow, even at the last part of his life, and he does more at the last part of it. Come on, forget the accusations and press forward to the prize of the high calling of Christ. I'm so grateful to be here. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. I began here two nights ago. I have been devouring this passage for months. And I just feel like more and more God has given us insight. First of all, Jesus comes, and I won't go into the story, the whole story of last night, uh, two nights ago, but a revelation he's given to Peter. He says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And as I shared, what he says next is dependent upon a revelation of the Christ, the son of the living God. And I want to encourage what I encouraged the night before, there is one prayer that we have to pray, and that is, God, give us a revelation of Jesus the Christ. For without a revelation, all we are doing is trying to build in our own strength what we have not yet seen of him. Only a revelation of Christ will cause us to go follow him and go after the cross. Lift your hands and let's pray it. Father, we pray in Boston, where there is a revelation of man in his fame and glory, release a revelation of the Christ, the son of the living God. We ask tonight that some radicals out here in their false philosophies would see 
and hear a voice get knocked off their donkey. I am Christ whom you are persecuting and make him an apostle to New, uh, to New England in Jesus' name. We ask for a widespread revelation of Jesus in New England, in Boston, in Harvard, in the universities, we ask for it. And I wanna encourage you to pray this. I, I'm actually trying to start a movement. Pray this prayer. If Peter needed a revelation of the Christ, the son of the living God, so that upon that revelation, he could build a church that prevails over every gate of hell. Don't you think the last generation of apostles needs the same kind of revelation? We have to have that revelation. That's why Paul prayed continuously. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you might receive a spirit of wisdom and revelation. The whole issue of apostles was not in a position or a big capital A. They had all had a personal vision and visitation of Jesus. And only that kind of visitation will produce the martyrs that are needed to turn a generation. It will not produce this otherwise. We could stop right there. My friend, again, had a dream the other night. I mean, a, a month ago. We were coming down off of an old, uh, out of a, a, a skyscraper falling to the ground. And I'm down here at the bottom and he cries out, I don't want an anthropological house of prayer. I want a Christological house of prayer. And in the dream, I say, oh, give me a hymn book. That's awesome in itself. Hymns are filled with theology. Anthropology is the study of Christ. God is not interested in justice houses of prayer that are after causes. It's houses of prayer that are after Christ who will release his causes through us. Now I have committed, I've raised up a prayer movement for the ending of abortion. But if that's what it is, we'll join Oprah and everybody else. Sorry. To get it done, I tell you what, I refuse to make alliances with false religious leaders for the sake of feeding the poor. Jesus is the champion of justice. If he's not, we'll become a group of angry people fighting for justice. And the very thing that we're trying to defeat, we will become like. As Walter Wink says, prayer, justice without prayer makes the, the wells go dry. And you end up becoming angry and become like the beast you're trying to destroy. I want to follow Jesus, the champion of justice, and make a name for him. Anyway, revelation of the Christ. Would you pray that with me? Let's pray for the next, every day for the next uh, 30 years. And then he says, verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. I think he was exploding with excitement. Oh my gosh, he's got the revelation. Now I can release my manifesto, my public declaration of my intentions for war. Come on. That's what a, a manifesto is. It is the declar public declaration of a sovereign or a prince 
declaring his opinions, his purposes, and the grand scope and the great claims of his rulership. Here he comes from that revelation. He says, thou art the Christ, son of the living Christ. You are Peter upon this rock. I will build, say build, build my church, my ecclesia, my ruling body, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I want to tell you there's a lot of gates of hell in this region. But when I read this Bible, it doesn't say some gates. It means potentially through this scripture, every gate of hell and entrance of false philosophy is a potential casualty to the coming kingdom. You can't think any way else about this passage. He means when I build upon this revelation, I tell you wherever that ecclesia goes, wherever it goes, the gates of hell are in trouble. We've diminished the manifesto of Jesus. We've tried to stay away from the gates of hell rather than attack them. He says, and the gates of hell will not prevail. The word prevail assumes there is a wrestling match, a war, a fight for supremacy. And on that 40-day fast we did in 1996, and during that fast, he gave us a dream of a Buddhist house of prayer dominating a Christian house of prayer. But the Christian house of prayer does a reversal and begins to dominate the Buddhist house of prayer. The Lord spoke to us our life job description. Raise up a house of prayer that contends with every other house that raises itself up against the knowledge and supremacy of Christ. So Bethany tells me today, on the day you started, on the week you started your house of prayer here in a little two-bedroom apartment, basically, the Buddhists came in here on the same time and launched a Buddhist house of prayer in a two-bedroom apartment. And for a whole year, they wouldn't go out or do anything. All they were doing was prayer. Isn't that right? Now, see, Buddhists understand the spiritual realm more than we do. We think that prayer is some kind of side issue. The Argentine revival took place when Edward Miller was an evangelist preaching the gospel in Argentina with very little fruit and the Lord told him, shut it all down and spend eight hours a day in prayer. <laughs> and he does for months and finally he's so tired of it, he goes out and instantaneously someone is radically converted. Jesus says, that's what happens when you win the battle in prayer. Now get back in the closet. <laughs> and for eight months, eight hours a day, Edward Miller prays a no evangelism, just prayer. I tell you what he did, he bound the strong man. And after that eight months, he went into a little prayer meeting and only four people showed up. And for three days they prayed. And they, he would say to the, this little group of nobodies, welcome to the house of prayer movement. Not many wise, not many noble, just two or three. <laughs> and he says, does anybody have a, a word from God? And, and this one lady says, I, I got this word that I'm, I'm to pound the table with my fist. He says, well, then do it. She says, no, I'm not going to do it. 
three days and does this. She's hearing the same thing. Finally, he says, okay, tonight we're all going to beat our fist on the table. Bam, the spirit falls and the Argentine revival breaks out. And we're still seeing the fruit of the Argentine revival. One man, eight months, eight hours a day in prayer. And people want to... Tell us, don't be involved in the prayer movement. You're not doing anything. I'll tell you, you're doing something much more than preaching. You're proclaiming the wisdom of God to principalities and powers. Let my people go. Tell you, God, it's always been prayer that breaks the power. I ran into Omar Cabrera. He came to Pasadena. He says, I, he was seeing no fruit in Argentina. And that, he said, finally, I got so desperate. I went to Miami and I fasted on water for 40 days. I came back to Argentina. He said, I went into the hotel room for five days to pray. My wife was in a hotel room right next to me. For five days, she just prayed for her husband. And for five days, he said, I cleansed myself from all sin and all defilement. And on the fifth day, demonic powers appear to him in the room. And he binds them in the spirit of prayer. And then when he comes out for the crusade, people are already getting saved and healed before the meeting starts. Anyway, I got faith that Boston is going to see a jailbreak. Something's going to happen. And it's because God's raising up prayer. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Verse 19, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Say whatever. Whatever. Whatever, whatever. He's giving a blank check. Folks, we don't get prayer. I don't get prayer. I don't get this. He's saying, listen, I'm going to build a company of people, an ecclesia, and they will bind and they will loose whatever. Else, either Jesus was lying and we just all deceived or he's truly saying, we say, if that's the case, then God help us. Somebody find out what that means. Whatever you allow on earth shall be allowed in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed. And whatever you disallow, he said, you are the ruling company of the earth. And somebody is going to, in this lifetime, find out what that really means and exercise it before the coming of Jesus. And it is going to freak out governmental leaders, pagan professors. They won't know what to do. And everybody in their philosophy class is speaking in tongues. I'm not just doing hype, I'm just trying to read the Bible. And when I read the Bible, it kills me. Something's wrong here. So he says, this is, I'm, I'm gonna build something upon the revelation of the Christ. You're Peter, you're a stone, I'm the rock, you're the stone. 
Peter understands it. In 1 Peter, he says, we come to Christ Jesus, the living stone, the chief cornerstone, and we all are being built together as living stones on that foundation and being built into a spiritual house, the dwelling place of God. God's looking for a dwelling place. If Jesus can find a community in which he can dwell, I tell you what, whatever we ask shall be given to us. The problem is not so much uh, the, the manifesto. The problem is he's got to build us. And he says, I'm going to build upon you, Peter, the stone. I'm going to make you the first stone of an army of living stones being built together. Built doesn't mean just kind of rolling stones. I go to church. Starbucks religion. He says, I'm going to build something. You know what that means? That means he's going to lock relationships together. He's going to build something relationally in love that he can say, oh, this is the father's house. And he can dwell there in such a way that when they pray, boy, he backs them up every bit of the way. So Matthew 18, he, he gives us further understanding of this. I've always read this passage and, you know, I just never really got it. Verse 15, moreover, now remember, this is, a, Matthew 16 is the first place that Jesus used the word church, which is ecclesia, which is not a gathering place. It's a ruling body. It's those who can vote. <laughs> you don't vote, you're not the ecclesia. How's that? Well, shut up, Lou. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with him one or two or more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the, the ruling body. It's going to be interesting. Here in this passage, he tells him the first passage, he's talking about my ruling body and what it's going to do on the revelation. In this one, he's talking about his ruling body and how it is to be constituted and how it is to be built so that the binding and loosing can go forward. Does that make sense? Two of you. And if he refuses to hear it, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear even the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now look at this verse. Assuredly, say assuredly. Do you think Jesus, when he said assuredly, meant assuredly? Yes. I say to you, whatever, say whatever. You bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now he uses the word again. Look at it in your scripture. He says again. So the again has to do with the verse preceding it, 18. He is basically reiterating the binding and loosing, and he's putting it in the context of prayer. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. He is saying that binding and loosing takes place primarily in the context of a green prayer. 
So he says, whatever you bind, shall be, this is how you're going to prevail against the gates of hell. You're going to bind and you're going to loose. How do you do that? You do it through agreeing prayer with two or three people. I'd rather have two or three in a little tiny house of prayer fully agreed than a mega church of vacationers. All he needed was 12 and he shook the known world. Now look at this. this so then he goes on, look at this. He goes on. And, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. What does that mean? It's First Peter 2, the dwelling place of God. They're built together relationally so that in their constitution relationally, whatever they pray will be done, whatever they bind shall be bound, whatever they loose shall be loose, because they're in the context of a relational community built together. Jesus inhabits it and, and, and is in the midst of it. I'm going somewhere with this. Hold on. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? Shall my, and I forgive him up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Notice the two passages, agreeing prayer and binding and loosing, are surrounded by two relational passages. He is saying here, the church must govern itself so that it can govern the world. The ecclesia governing through prayer must be able to bind and loose its own community so that it can actually prevail over the gates of hell. And here's the context. If a brother, and I'm not, I'm not talking about somebody who is struggling with sin. Anybody struggling with sin? You and me and Fred. Okay, good. He's saying, you forgive 70 times 7. The community is a community of complete forgiveness. <laughs> we struggle. We confess our sins. And we do it in the context of a community who dares to be sinners. Nobody dares to be sinners in church. So we live alone and isolated from the ecclesia and demand to stay in our darkness. The glory of the church, it is a place where we forgive completely and continually. But if a brother puts in his heels with rebellion and divisiveness, and you confront him in love, he's removed from the ecclesia because you see, if there is division, a house divided against itself cannot stand. God is seeking to build a community of forgiveness, but without division, so that when they come together, he can say, I can stand in the midst of them and their prayers are effective. It's our vision, J-Hops, that our community asks forgiveness 
we make a commitment that we will never speak out against one another. How many of you know that's been broken a few times? But we make a transaction. We are going to walk in love because it's the Father's house. We're not gonna speak against one another, and if we do, we're gonna deal with the relationship. We're not gonna hide from the confrontation in love. But I tell you what this, we are going to forgive our brothers and sisters. It is a community and ecclesia of love. My daughter, Gloria, she's 16 years old, just had an accident. She was running on a parking lot in, in Toledo at Walmart and fell violently, slammed her head, and cracked her, fractured her skull. I was holding her head, blood's coming out her ear. Her eyes rolled back. We thought we lost our girl. Her name's Gloria. The boys were crying. I was, we were all just crying. I was rebuking the devil and every other thing I could rebuke. But my daughter was spared. I called Jesse up, up in Vermont. And, and, and you know, he's crying on the phone, and Jonathan in Alaska is crying on the phone. Jesse says to me, you know, D Dad, our family may not have it all together, but oh, how we love one another. I think that's what God is wanting. He's wanting a community of love, of openness, without hidden sin so that we actually, through that love and the covering of Jesus, actually have authority over the demonic powers that rule by division, slander, and, and hidden sin. See what I'm saying? He wants a colony on earth as it is in heaven. There he says, I'll dwell among, I'm gonna build you together into a community of love and forgiveness and openness that when you come together, you can move together in agreement, not mental assent, but relational unity. And where you bind, it shall be bound. I tell you, the problem with Boston is not an evangelism program. God, all he needs is an ecclesia, constituted like the kingdom. Can I tell you? The constitution of the kingdom is the Sermon on the Mount. Our ecclesias must devour. I'm starting a movement called Separated to the Sermon, and wherever I'm going, I'm telling, for the rest of your life, every week, read the Sermon on the Mount. It is God's constitution. If you look at a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You do not divorce except for immorality. What if we started preaching that in our churches? We say, Lou, that's kind of heavy. I didn't say it. <laughs> Jesus says, he who hears these words of mine and does them is greatest in the kingdom of heaven, but he who does not do and teacheth others not to do is least in the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is a binding declaration of the king saying, this is how my community lives. I want to build a community who before they bring their gift to the altar and remember that a brother has an art, they go to them, get it right. So when they come together, they're a community without accusation against them. The problem is not the world. The problem is building the ecclesia with its essential nature as a praying community.
Does this make sense to you? I wanna encourage you, read the Sermon on the Mount for the rest of your life every week. How many of you have ever studied the Constitution of the United States? Studied it, raise your hands. One or two. That's why America is in such problems because we don't know the Constitution. We're gonna have to learn the Constitution of the kingdom. Amen? All right, I'm going somewhere with this. This is radical, you guys. And I'm trying to live it out the best I can that you don't call someone raka. Call someone an idiot. He who calls someone an idiot is in danger of hellfire. What are you talking about? Someone just spoke to me. He says, it's the beginning of dehumanizing a person. And what is at the beginning will bear fruit at the end. If you, I want to encourage people, don't listen to Rush Limbaugh very much. You'll get a bitter, angry spirit. Oh. I feel like the Lord's been saying, listen, there is a wisdom above the right-wing political wisdom. I believe the future of our nation might rest on whether or not we pray for, for President Obama like we prayed for President Bush. Did I tell that story last? Let me tell you a story, and then I'm gonna go into the, uh, what I gotta go into. <laughs> so the Joplin tornado comes through Missouri sweeps through that, and I tell my friends, I believe this is the beginnings of the redemptive judgments of God. How many of you know God will not let slavery go on forever without dealing with the nation? The civil war was God's dealing with the nation because he loves a nation enough to let her go through his disciplines to pull her back to his original intention, his constitution. And I said, I think this is the beginnings of God's dealings and shakings in this nation for the shedding of innocent blood of abortion. It's the Missouri Compromise all over again, and there's a divine separation going on the nation on the issue of abortion. Nobody, t I, I just told a few friends of mine, a friend of mine goes down to Joplin, goes to Joplin, runs into a pastor, and the pastor says, before the tornado, I preached for eight weeks on the judgments of God, and I preached on tornadoes. And six weeks before the tornado, I had a dream, and in the dream, I was golfing with President Obama. And I hooked it left, and I teed off and hooked it left, and I missed the fairway. I got back on the fairway, I walk up to President Obama, and I begin to sing out of my spirit in the dream, America, America, God shed his grace on me. He says it was like an anointing, a prophecy. He shakes the hand of President Obama and says, Mr. President, Mr. President Obama, you must end abortion. You must end abortion. That's his dream. He's thinking, I'll never meet President Obama. So what does it mean? Two weeks later, his daughter has a dream. 
She has a dream. She walks into a house of prayer and she sees, she's looking for a secret code and she sees a picture of President Lincoln and sees the code written on his face and it's 529-11. She wakes up and she's thinking, is this a date? 522-11, the tornado sweeps through Joplin and on 529-11, the secret code, President Obama comes to Joplin. The couple goes there, his pastor and his wife, because of the dream, they have terrible seats. Two pastors who have the best seats see them, said, why don't you sit in our seats? We're gonna be on the stage with President Obama. They have the best seats in the house. President Obama walks in, they meet eyes, he goes to the pulpit. President Obama gives his message and he's walking down now to shake the hands of the people in the front row and suddenly as he's coming to the couple, the choir kicks in, America, America, God shed his grace on thee. And he turns to his wife and she says, it's the dream. I gotta tell him, Mr. President, he's gotta end abortion. She said, if you don't, I will. He walks up and says, Mr. President, with tears in his eyes, you must end abortion. You must remember the unborn. President Obama looks at him in the eyes, looks down, and then walks away. This is what I believe the interpretation of the dream is. It's the secret code. President Lincoln presided over a nation under the shedding of the innocent blood of the slaves. He was not for stopping slavery, he was for saving the union. But after the judgment swept through in his second inaugural address, he said, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that the scourge of war may speedily pass away. But if God wills that it continue until every drop of blood drawn by the lash must be repaid by that drawn by the sword, let it be said that the judgments of the Lord are righteous and true altogether. The secret code is this, President Obama, is now presiding over a nation under the judgment of the shedding of innocent blood of 54 million babies. And wouldn't it be like God that he would convert that man to understand that what is coming to shake America is about him releasing an emancipation proclamation. Wouldn't it be like God to use a white man from Illinois to release an emancipation proclamation for the ending of slavery so that a black man could become president who would release an emancipation proclamation for the ending of abortion. That tornado swept right through Joplin. Of all those streets, it swept 25 of the names of the streets were named after states in America. It's the separation of this nation. Folks, get ready for economic shakedown. Get ready for, that, for weather patterns. Get ready for, for I don't, I'm not prophesying, I'm just saying, God's gonna shake the nation until we get it. Now here's the deal, in 1996 I had a dream. I was on stage with Bill Clinton. At the time he was in trouble, and I go up, a stadium filled with people, and I said, it's time to stop pointing the finger at Bill Clinton. It's time to pray for him. I turn, and he's weeping on the stage, and Muslims are coming, bringing the materials to influence him 
brothers and sisters, I believe that was a preparation for this day. God is saying, stop pointing the finger at Bill Cl at President Obama. What if God would use a black man to bring the races together if the whites would begin to pray for him as much as they prayed for President Bush? What if God had a wisdom that was above our Democrat and Republican wisdom? I'm not saying I could vote for him because I could never participate by my declaration of the shedding of innocent blood. But I tell you what, God's box is bigger than ours. He doesn't say point the finger. He says pray for those in authority. It's time for the church to repent. I'm going to Detroit and white and black are joining together. Maybe we'll get Azusa Street, William Seymour and Bartleman. There is a wisdom and the wisdom is the wisdom of the cross. He shatters all our paradigms with the wisdom that is only revealed in Christ. Stand with me for a moment, and I want you to lift your voices because I, I have been feeling like I need to pray as if the future of our nation depended upon President Obama having a revelation from heaven. Father, I pray right now. Would you just lift your hands, your heart, lift your voices. We pray for President Obama. We thank you. He is our president. I pray for President Obama. I pray that you would visit him with revelation. Visit his children. Visit Michelle. Protect them from the evil one. We pray that he would be a Lincoln-type president. We ask for the ending of abortion, even in these days. We ask that, God, you would spare the church from a bitterness and an anger and a pointing the finger that is not from you. We pray that you would make us prophetic, but we would be weeping prophets. Pray for President Obama. We pray the word that that man gave to him would not return void. We pray that he would be haunted by it. Think about it. Night and day in the dreams, Lord. Pilate's wife, Lord, that he wouldn't wash his hands in water thinking I'm innocent of the blood. Oh, come to him. Come to President Obama. We turn our hearts to that man. We need to repent from pointing the finger and not praying from you have no right to criticize what you don't pray for. So Father, tonight start a prayer movement out of Boston. Lord, the dream you gave to me that Ted Kennedy was coming into the house of prayer and he didn't want to leave. I believe you want to bring political leaders into the influence of the house of the Father, God. We ask for America tonight, God, shed your grace, God. I believe that song is what he is singing over America. He wants so bad to shed his grace on America. And it has to do with President Obama. Shed your grace on us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And so I end this night with a couple stories. We've talked about Antioch again is the title of this conference. Nobody even knows what Antioch again is. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Quickly. Acts 13. Sorry, Brian. Now in the church. church, the ecclesia, come on. In the ecclesia, 
At Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Look at this motley crew. Look what Jesus does. He smashes the wisdom of men. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm part of the black church. I'm part of the white church. They're all gathered in Antioch. A black man from Niger. Lucius, a Roman dude. Paul was a Jewish fanatic. Barnabas was a guy from Cyprus. The whole bunch are all together. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all ethnic groups. Isn't it beautiful? The manifold wisdom of God is known made known to the principalities and powers, manifold, the multi-ethnic, the multi-variegated, colored house of prayer. He says, this is the wisdom that will be made known to the principalities and powers, made in the context of the one new man, Jew and Gentile. Folks, if the church can't be unified, how is Boston and Detroit and Los Angeles gonna be unified? They will tear one another to pieces. He says, my house, I'm gonna bring them together under a higher banner than skin. And Antioch, they are all there. And it's interesting, prophets and teachers, the prophets aren't beating up on the teachers and the teachers aren't beating up on the prophets. I remember the teachers that I was always with. They let me preach rarely. <laughs> Still have a bitter spirit about that one. And when I did preach, I remember the teacher coming, you didn't have an outline, and I'm thinking. You think I was trying to get, I was put, trying to put a little fire under your. <laughs> Prophets and teachers have different assignments. Prophets don't have outlines. Prophets. <laughs> I remember the first time I found out my true calling, it was in college. And I wasn't even a Christian, but I was had to give a, a, a persuasive speech with an outline. I didn't have an outline, but I preached the gospel. And it was persuasive. I felt all on fire. I'm preaching to the class. Wait a minute, I'm not even a Christian. I'm preaching. And I got a C because I didn't have an outline. And prophets and teachers, do you see how God sharpens one another by bringing us into a community of love? And we have to be built together and fit together so that we can bind and loose. There they are, fasting and ministering to the Lord. Verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. There it is. It's the house of prayer. Worship, ministering to the Lord, fasting. How long were they doing it? Were they doing it day and night? We don't know. Could have been 13 days, day and night, worshiping, ministering to the Lord, fasting. And then the Holy Ghost spoke, set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, to the work that I have called to them. You see, this house of prayer, this community built together in love, joined together, fasting, ministering to the Lord, and looking for the direct intervention and government of the Holy Spirit. When that comes, 
Then suddenly bones begin to rattle. Apostles are released and the whole Gentile world is released and opened up to the apostolic movement. Antioch again. I remember when we moved to Pasadena to launch a prayer, uh, launch a church. We had a vision of, of a great revival coming and we went to Pasadena. We prayed and I remember on the sidewalk where I lived, the Lord just began to speak to me and he said, Lou, pray that your church would be Antioch again. And so I brought this message to our church and for years this became the defining prayer, God make us an Antioch. That fasting, ministering the Lord, joining together in union would release missionaries that would go to the places that had never been opened. And we prayed for the hidden people groups. This was our dream, Brian. This is what we lived. And we, we, we prayed for Antioch again. Jerusalem got all settled down in its own city, all ingrown. Jesus had said to them, you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, but they didn't go beyond Jerusalem. And so God has to set something up to get them out of Jerusalem. And so he sets up the martyrdom of Philip and the martyrdom of Philip scatters the church and they go to Antioch and other places and then they start preaching, chattering the gospel to a group of Greeks in Antioch. And it says suddenly the hand of the Lord comes upon them and many people are being saved. Folks, God seems to anoint when you go beyond your boundaries. God's looking for a people that will go from, away from their safety zones and step cross boundaries. And they go to Antioch and Antioch becomes the capital. It's moved from Jerusalem to Antioch. I wanna tell you, God is going to raise up Antioch again. And so we sent our first team to the Philippines and it blew up and everything blew up. Our church blew up and everything. The dreams were shattered. And I remember years went by. And one day I was with, in this Mott Auditorium named after John Armada, the student missions movement. And I was there in that old auditorium and I had a vision of that auditorium filled 3,000 kids with tears streaming down their eyes. And I'm weeping, it's, I'm so filled with this vision. And, and I said, what is this Lord? And he says, this is John Armott Auditorium. And instantly I knew it. God was going to release out of day and night worship. He was going to release a mission, student missions movement from America again. That day I went, I walked out of the Mott Auditorium and I said, God, give me this campus for a student missions movement. I went over my pastor's office I was talking with him and out of the blue, he says, you know, Lou, Antioch again still lives in my heart. And I said, oh, I told him my vision. That night I went to a vineyard out in Glendale. This one pastor, I met him one time. Walk in this meeting there, these prophets come from Florida and they're prophesying over people. And they called me out and this is what the prophet said. The prophet says, the Lord says, that I will restore Antioch again. 
And where Jerusalem shut down the missions movement, I will change my capital to Antioch. And I will once again send mission teams to the nations of the earth. I got to tell you, I feel like I'm in the fulfillment of this moment with the Axe School, with the dream of the New England Ivy League schools and the student volunteer missions movement. I feel that I am standing at the beginnings yet of something that God said, I'm going to release Antioch again. A house of prayer, fasting and ministering, built together in relationship, agreeing together. That whole countries will come and open up to the breast and the brightest out of New England as we send another wave of student mission movement. Come on. This is your calling. This was at Antioch again. And I just, I'm going to dream with you that Antioch's going to live right here. J-hop and other hops. And then we'll just hop over the seas into... <laughs> Build some hops over into the Muslim countries. Do you see it? It's the ecclesia. Antioch became the built ecclesia. Jesus, the gates of hell. Paul goes into the places the demons are screaming. He's binding and loosing demonic powers. Ephesians. He casts out a demon out of a diviner who's crying out, great is Diana of the Ephesians or whatever. He, he actually goes in and basically threatens the whole economy of the city. Give us some Pauls who so shake that the whole city is called pandemonium breaks out. Pandemonium means mass demonization. Give us some apostles who will create where the demons start. Ah, why? Because God has come through his ecclesia. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I tell you, I still believe the best days are ahead of us. It was in those days, in 1993, I met a man named Jim Gall because there was another ecclesia that rose up in the 1700s in a place in Germany called Hernhut. And it was the place of the watch of the Lord and the Moravians. The Moravians actually, um, a man named Count Zinzendorf was in this, had this estate, a wealthy man who loved Jesus. There were the, the Moravians had been persecuted for their faith and they found a refuge right there on Count Zinzendorf's property. Several groups came in there and Zinzendorf created an estate for these refugees, these Moravians. But they were so divided among one another. They were divided. There's no way anything could be done. And so Zinzendorf started going, as you told me today, door to door, doing reconciliation. You see what I'm saying? My, I'm going to build her together. You see, the revival of the Moravians didn't start with a prayer meeting. It started with getting his house built in unity and union. And they begin to come together and the Lord began to move on them. And they had a communion service. And they all made covenant together to walk together in love and in union. It's what we've talked about with our Jehovah's, that we will be a covenantal people who actually become the family of love that God can answer our prayers. A church is not a gathering place, folks. We are so unbuilt, 
Worship teams filled with sexual immorality and unconfessed sin. How are you gonna bind that which binds you? We're more like Boston than we are than the community of heaven on earth. Come on, something's gonna change. It's hard, but glorious. They take a communion and the spirit pours out in what they call it the summer of love or something like that, where God baptized the community in love. And out of that was birthed a hundred year prayer meeting that went day and night, a hundred years under the love of God, two by two, two, and at, what was it, two for every two hours or one hour? Every hour, two by two, 48 people praying day and night for a hundred years. God, we just thank you, Father, for what you are orchestrating. Lord, in Boston, in New England, and in the nations of the earth. And God, we say, Lord, that it's our privilege, Lord, to be a part of what you are doing. And God, we ask, Lord, even for every life that is here tonight, Father. God, we say that at the end of our days, God, we wanna have the confidence of knowing that we have served the purpose of God in our generation. So God, we ask, Lord, even tonight, Father, that we would be those, Lord, with a prophetic spirit and a prophetic eye. God, that we would faithfully serve the purposes of God in our generation. God, we ask that even the word that was entrusted to us tonight, God, that we would faithfully watch over it and we would even wage a good warfare with the prophetic word that we have heard, Father. God, we thank you, Lord, that in this city, God, that you are raising up an unceasing song of worship in an unceasing cry of prayer. Lord, for your glory and your fame in the nations of the earth, O oh God. So God, we just specifically ask for a sealing of the word that was spoken here in this place. And the, Lord, that we would guard the seed of your word that was entrusted to our hearts, oh God. God, we thank you for the raising up of the Moravian lampstand night and day prayer that would bring the gospel to the nations of the earth. That by life or by death, we would follow the lamb. We just thank you for your spirit in this place. Accomplish your word, O oh God. Amen.